The information presented in this program is not intended as legal, health, or nutritional advice. All topics are provided for informational purposes only and are not necessarily endorsed. Neither Light On nor its host accepts responsibility for any statements, views, or opinions presented in this episode. All rights reserved. It feels like all our heroes are coming. We all know why. Painful enough to pretend. The world itself is just one big hoax. Jerry Marzinski is a retired licensed psychotherapist with over 40 years of experience working with and studying the thought processes of psychotic and criminally insane patients in some of the most volatile psychiatric institutions in the nation. Jerry is a commercial pilot, certified scuba diver, and long distance motorcyclist. He has held the positions of second lieutenant in the Arizona Civil Air Patrol and assistant scoutmaster. He was awarded the State of Arizona's Meritorious Service Award and the Pima College Apple Award of Teaching Abnormal Psychology. His formal academic training comprises a BA in psychology from Temple University, a master's degree in counseling from the University of Georgia, and two years of study in a PhD psychology program. He is the co-author of An Amazing Journey into the Psychotic Mind, and Breaking the Spell of the Ivory Tower, and currently has a private practice in Arizona. Jerry, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. It's good to be here. So I guess my first question for you is, um, where all this started for you? You obviously have a, a sort of, I, I'm assuming you started like a, main, a mainstream, you know, um, career in, in psychology. Where did, uh, how did that go, and where did... Where did that all divert for you? Well, you know, when I entered college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and when I hit the first psychology course, I went, well, okay, this is interesting. Um, so, you know, I, I pursued that that track uh, at Temple University, where I, I graduated with a, a BA in psychology. But what I hated about undergraduate psychology is that except for experimental psychology where you can go into a rat lab and, and actually see these uh, behavioral schedules operating you, you could you, you couldn't verify anything they were saying mm-hmm. you know that uh, you had to believe whatever they were telling you and that didn't go well with me because I, I for ever since I was a kid I never trusted authority you know, so for me to basically suck all this information in and then spit it out on the test without being able to verify it for myself was really irked me, you know, because it, it's like I, I, I couldn't tell. And, uh, and one thing I noticed in the back of the, the uh, textbooks <clears throat> were all these references, you know, so this guy's referencing this guy who's referencing this guy who's who got the information from this other guy. And it, it just, it's like this cascade of, of, um, you know, it's like the more people they, they get publishing that same information. It seems like they believe that it, the more true it was. Um, right. And, uh, mainstream medicine works, right? <laughs> that's the way psychology works. And then there was the publisher parish stuff, which I heard about uh, in undergraduate school. I mean, if if you're in psychology in academia and you're not publishing something, you're in trouble. 
you know, they want you to publish. And they, and as I went through the different levels of education, I saw in the PhD program, they virtually didn't care what you published as long as you published something. You know? And, uh, you know, it was years later after I got out of the, uh, the PhD program where I, I saw this study that they did on psychology. Um, and they, they, what they, this big organization, research organization, replicated or tried to replicate a lot of the studies that were printed in or published in psychology, they found out that 80% of them were not replicable. So that means 80% of what they were publishing was bullcrap. <laughs> There's actually and, a study about how most studies are false. I forget who who did that study, but... Well, <laughs> it might have been the same guy. I don't know, but it was a, a major research organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I saw that in the PhD program. I mean, it's, you know, well, just publish, you know, just publish this thing and just add your widget to the rest of them. It doesn't matter. You yeah. Know? Um, so, you know, that, that really irked me about, about psychology. Why, and why then you, I, there was such a big push for like publishing. I guess they want the universities to be known, mm. you know, so if these guys are publishing from this university or that university, I mean, it gets the university's name out there. You know, I, 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 I assume that's what it is. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, so they just publish all kinds of garbage. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And, uh, you know, I remember even in undergraduate school, there was this one time where we were we were assigned a study by a clinical psychologist who uh, for abnormal psychology. And he wrote that if two crazy guys met each other and they had the same delusion, you know, so if, if, if both of them thought they were Joe Biden, one of them would have to give way and change his delusion to something else. And even as an undergraduate, I'm going, why would that happen? You have two crazy guys. Why would one of them have to change their delusion to make sense to the other crazy guy? Yeah. It, it just it didn't matter. But I didn't have access to a clinical population. No undergraduate does that I know of. You really? can't go into a mental health center. You can't go into a, a psych ward. You can't go into a prison and say, listen, I want to study this population. They won't let you in there. You know, they don't, you know, they'll make up some excuse in the prison. They, they, they'd say, oh, it's too dangerous. We can't assume the responsibility. Same thing with uh, private psych hospitals, state hospitals. You know, they're not going to let researchers in there. My entire career, 
over close to 50 years at this point, I have never seen a researcher on the front lines anywhere. Never. It's all done by the universities, which were taken over in the 1930s by uh, um, Carnegie and, and uh, who was it? Uh, one of the millionaires. Rockefeller. Um, Rockefeller. Exactly right. With the uh, Flexner report, you know, back that far back, they, they uh, took over the Congress, they paid them off and they made laws saying that if, if the universities didn't teach pharmacological medicine, they couldn't graduate doctors. <laughs> so that was it. You know, so, you know, naturopathy, uh, uh, acupuncture, uh, some of these, uh, Tesla's electrical therapies, all these other therapies that were emerging at that time were knocked out. And the American Medical Association would say, oh, they're all quacks. They don't know anything. That This, this is the true medicine, what we're teaching in schools. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they knocked out uh, any other kind of medicine and started pushing drugs. You know, that... And and where did that get us? You know, it's like uh, you know, right now there's there's uh, what is it? The CDC reports. So so we have more psychiatrists dishing out drugs in the United States worldwide than we ever have in the history of the planet. We have more psychiatrists. We have more psychologists than ever, and. What's happening is that um, almost 50,000 Americans kill themselves every year. Wow. You know, 50,000 died in the in the Vietnam. So I think the exact count in 2021, it was 48,000 Americans killed themselves. You know, the CDC reports 132 people kill themselves in the U.S. every day. And it's been increasing. So between 2000 and 2018, the suicide rates increased 37 percent, you know, and they've been increasing ever since then. So what good are these drugs that they're dishing out? I mean, they're not stopping anything. They don't cure anything. They don't cure schizophrenia. Matter of fact, um, murders are increasing. Um, suicide rates are increasing. You know, does this look like it? Uh, constitutes an effective mental health system <laughs> you know, oh. it's it's ridiculous what what the psychiatric mafia are doing you know and you know they come up with this uh as far as schizophrenia goes you know decades ago they said it, they blamed it on mothers you know it's it's the mothers did something they they did they they somehow caused this but you know, everybody could see that you know, the, the mothers are going, we didn't do anything. I mean, we don't know what happened, at the, you know. So what they did is they boosted it up into an area where most people could not verify anything. So they started off with, oh, it's a, a genetic disorder. Hmm. They had no proof for that whatsoever. Right. You know? So they reduced the number of people who could verify what was going on from the entire population to a very small, minuscule amount of genetic researchers, you know, and most of them weren't interested in, you know, studying the genetics of schizophrenia, but they found that there was no genetic link. You know, 
and they 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 publish that they go, there is no genetic link well that really upset the uh deep deep state uh you know psychiatric mafia and and the drug companies so they had to come up with something else so Eli Lilly back in the 70s when they when they uh came out with Prozac they just they just went hey it's it's a uh, biochemical disorder hmm. you know uh they didn't have any proof at the time they just went oh well it's it's a drug and it, it these drugs affect their behavior somehow so it must be a you know biological imbalance or uh, uh in the brain they had no proof they pushed that they controlled the university so they had the universities teach that and they're still teaching that and it's been disproved long ago and they're still pushing it you can go to these drug ads and now now the big farmer is going oh we just believe that you know schizophrenia is caused by a chemical imbalance of the brain or studies show that it's a chemical there's no truth to it you know and i i suspected that when i went to work at uh, central state hospital which was the biggest it was the biggest psychiatric hospital in the world at the time. When I got there, there were like 10,000 patients, and that was down from about 23 a decade before. You know, so it was massive. There was every crazy person, every diagnosis you could ever think of was there. Yeah. So uh, what I noticed to start with was I never saw a psychiatrist give any kind of lab test before prescribing the drugs. They didn't give any kind of test. There was no EEG, EKG, no kind of uh, uh, hardcore test. There, there was no lab work, no nothing. So I'm like, well, how, how would they know what chemicals in the brain are out of balance or by how much if they don't take some kind of baseline? You know. <laughs> so I went up to one of them and asked them one time, I said, how do you know what's out of balance? And and by how much, if you're not taking any kind of baseline, he said, oh, the drug companies figure all that out for us, you know. Or it's big pharma, right? Big pharma, mm -hmm. you know. So it's like, what what is what are you talking about? I mean, the, the drug companies, you're, you're, it was nuts. So they, here they are believing it's a chemical imbalance. And there's like, what, 25 or so uh, neurotransmitters in the brain, something like that. They don't even know what the chemical imbalance, uh, the proper balance of chemicals in the brain is, let alone what's out of balance. I mean, it's just a scam. It's a total scam. And they're just promoting it for money, you know, to sell drugs. It, it was ridiculous. So, you know, I, I, when I saw that, it's like something's rotten in Denmark here. You know, something doesn't make any sense. Um You know, and and all the psychiatrists believed, not all of them, but the majority of them believed that they were treating some chemical imbalance in the brain. It never dawned on them that they need some kind of baseline to figure out what's what's out of whack if they are treating a uh, a chemical imbalance of the brain. They just dish out their drugs. It's like uh, uh, it's like it's totally subjective. They go, well, I think this drug will work with this guy. And if that doesn't work, they try another one. If that doesn't work, they try another one. If that didn't work, they try another one. They just keep going until they one, find one that works the best. Now, the problem with antipsychotic drugs is that some of the most dangerous drugs on the planet. 
they are rotting out the brains of these patients that are using them long term. And I've seen that in the state hospital. They called it the uh, uh, Thorazine shuffle. These people could not walk with a normal gait. Their brain was so rotted out by these drugs. Wow. Uh, what they what they found was they started doing autopsies on these patients who were using these antipsychotic drugs long term, and they found that their brains were rotted out and looked like shriveled walnuts. So when they published this, Big Pharma and the psychiatric mafia went, "No, no, it's it's not our drugs. It's not our drugs. It's the schizophrenia," you know. So they tried to blame it on the on the schizophrenia. So uh, there was an actual reduction in size of the brain, though. Oh yeah. Wow. It, shrink, it shrinks and and it it looks like a shriveled up walnut, so mm. it actually does physical damage to the brain and to the peripheral nervous system with long term use. They didn't want that information out, yeah. you know. But but more reputable researchers went around them. Thank God for reputable people, and they started feeding these same, you know, massive doses to uh, monkeys and rats you know, uh, an equivalent dose to humans. And they saw that their brains shrunk also. You know, their brains deteriorated also. And they published that. Boy, they didn't like that. You know. So here they are pushing their eye. I mean, it's a total fabrication. Uh, the This chemical brain imbalance, this genetic stuff, it's a, a, a total lie. You know. They're pushing it to sell drugs and to sell their services. You know, you can't get, these are some of the, these are the least abusable of drugs. I mean, these, these, the chemicals that, that the drug companies are putting out for mental health, nobody in their right mind wants to take antipsychotic drugs. Right. You know, their, their side effects are awful. You know, they're, they're, they're terrible. I've heard that they can do homicidal and suicidal. Is that true? Yeah, with antidepressants, they—I think they even put it on the package on some of them, mm-hmm. saying could could trigger. And you know, I've heard a number of cases where they started taking these antidepressive drugs, and they killed themselves. You know, they were hanging on until they started taking those drugs. Um, but the, you know, they—they're still pushing this biochemical imbalance thing to sell drugs. Now. These these drugs are not abusable, but psychology, psychiatry has fixed it with the legislature again that people have to go through them to get these drugs. And so they're they're clutching the control of these drugs. You know, you go to the 60 miles to the south of where I am, you can go to Mexico and you can walk into a pharmacy and say, hey, I want some uh, Risperidol or, or, or I want some uh, Thorazine. And they'll sell it to you right over the counter. Wow. It's They're not abusable. Nobody wants to take them unless they have to take them. But psychiatry has worked it so you have to go to them and pay some $250 for an office visit. And then they'll prescribe you a month's worth. And then you got to go back again the next month. Right. It, it's crazy. They're, they're out of control. You can go to Mexico. You can see a psychiatrist once. He'll give you a diagnosis, recommend what medicines you need. You can go to the pharmacy and get them without a prescription. And then if you still need them, you can go back and get them without having to be milked by a psychiatrist like they do here in the United States. You just go get them. 
nobody's going to, they're not recreational drugs. They're horrible drugs. You know, they make you feel groggy, your eyes blur. You can't think straight. You feel like syrup's been poured on your brain. You know, they dumb you down. There's, you get this, this nervous feeling while, while you have this sedated feeling at the same time. They're horrible. You know, but yet the psychiatrists here in the United States are clutching the control of these drugs. You, know, you have to go through them. You know. Now, what I saw when, when I started working at this psychiatric hospital, Central State, was these voices that these people were hearing that psychiatry has pronounced with all the powers invested in them, like the, the Egyptian priests of old, that these, these voices are um, hallucinations. They have no proof of that. They've never studied them. Who's going to study a hallucination except maybe somebody crazy like me? Yeah. <laughs> so here they are. They're teaching that they're hallucinations. You go to any textbook, abnormal psychology. Oh, yeah, so schizophrenics are hearing hallucinations. Uh, they're due to a chemical brain imbalance. What I noticed was those hallucinations started running patterns. When I started asking these patients, what is it they're telling you? And at the state hospital, nobody cared. Nobody was the least bit interested in what the voices were telling these patients. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of started asking them. And it, it probably took a year and a half before I could figure out how to talk to them where they would give me some information about the voices. Because they don't trust psychology. They don't trust counselors. They don't trust psychiatrists. Because all they get when they start talking about their voices is their friends leave them. Their parents take them to a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist drugs them silly. And if they keep complaining about them, they get more drugs and they can't even think straight. I mean, some of them are got so many drugs, they're drooling because hmm. you know, that's all they know how to how to do with them. So it took a while to, to get them to trust me. And, uh, you know, I started finding that these patterns, uh, the, the voices were running patterns. And one of the predominant patterns, one of the first ones I realized was they were consistently negative consistently they never said anything positive it was you're no good you're rotten you're stupid you're ugly nobody likes you you're going to fail at everything you do i mean every rotten thing you can think of these things are telling these people you know non-stop and if they do tell them something positive it's only to come around behind them and stab them in the back later so my first question is what is it that holds them on such a negative pattern you know, why aren't they random like all other hallucinations? Why do they hold a consistently negative pattern? What holds them on that pattern? What stops them from going uh, uh, random? You know, something is holding them on that pattern. You know? So I went, if, if they're running patterns, they can't be hallucinations. So I started looking for more patterns. The second one that showed up was they were anti-religious. They didn't want anything to do with church. They didn't want the patient reading the Bible. They didn't want them going to church. They didn't want them repeating prayers. And I found, uh, I had some patients come, one patient come to me and he said, I repeat the 23rd Psalm. The voices react like worms thrown on a hot frying pan. And I'm like, why would a hallucination do that? Why would a hallucination be anti-religious? You know, and they, the same went with the Lord's Prayer or any other kind of positive spiritual verse out of the Bible. The voices would react vehemently to anything like that. You know? So why would a hallucination be anti-religious? 
Why would it care? But that was the second one. So what I did is when I found a pattern like this, I'd start asking all the other schizophrenics on my caseload and the, any others I could reach at the hospital, does this happen for you also? I never took took it at, at word. as at, I had to ask a bunch of people before I would consider it a pattern, you know, and there was no lack of schizophrenics at the state hospital. And so right. I, I had access to as many as I wanted to, unlike an undergraduate and graduate school or where universities. I mean, if a university professor came into the state hospital and said, I want to study schizophrenics, more than likely they would be turned down. They'd say, oh, it's too dangerous. We can't take the legal responsibility if you get hurt. Same way with the prisons. You know, they will not allow these people that. So what you have is the, the Rockefeller controlled universities controlled by big pharma are the ones doing all the research on schizophrenia and telling lies about the cause of it to the people to keep their drug sales up. And they're making, I think it's $7.4 billion, billion a year selling antipsychotic drugs worldwide. We're talking billions of dollars. They don't want the information I'm giving you right now. They don't want it out there. They don't want people knowing it. If schizophrenics voices are running patterns, they can't be hallucinations. Can you explain that a little bit? Why they can't be? Well, because hallucinations are random. They're all over the place. They're good. They're bad. They're neutral. They're all over the place. Mm. You know, I don't know if you've ever worked in a hospital where you where people were were hallucinating. Well, they don't make any state, sense. So it's a big hospital. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you saw them hallucinating, you'd see they makes no sense. Yeah. You know, there is no pattern to it. It's just all over the place. It's this and then that and then something else. It's They're all over the place. So loose nations, are not, they don't run patterns. Gotcha. They're, they're random in nature. The voices run patterns. And I've, I've found like, uh, I think 32 of them, they foster and create negative emotion. All right. And then they drain that. They drain the, that negative emotion. So if, and... You know, for any of you who work with schizophrenics or have one in your family, I mean, this is not rocket science. You go to my website at jerrymarzinski.com and you will see a listing of these patterns. And you can examine them from your, for yourself and you can see that they run these patterns. So <clears throat> what these patterns are like is like... Uh, well, the voices are energetic. You know, you can't see them. Normal people can't hear them. They can't feel them. <clears throat> so they're like a magnetic field. You know, they're, they're an energetic force that if you had a big magnet, you couldn't see that, neg that uh, uh, magnetic field. You couldn't see it. You couldn't taste it. You couldn't feel it. You couldn't smell it. For all practical purposes, it doesn't exist, you know, as far as your bodily senses are concerned. Right. But you get a jar of iron filings and you put it on that magnetic, on that magnet, and you will see the outline of the magnetic field. It's an energetic field. Mm -hmm. That's what these patterns are. It's the same thing. This is the operational definition of the voices. Okay? So this is like the iron filings for schizophrenia, negativity, anti-religious. They foster and create negative emotion. That's why they're telling these people all this rotten stuff. 
and then they energetically drain their victims. So if you talk to schizophrenics and you say, how much energy do you have before the voices come? How much energy do you have after the voices come? They'll tell you, my energy's gone. After the voices attack and leave, I don't have any energy. They said it was akin to working in the hot sun all day with a pickaxe. That's how tired they were after the voices left. Wow. And that's a fixed pattern. You can talk to any of them and they'll tell you that same pattern. Where does that energy go? They never knew. You know, so you could you could tell them, you ask them, well, where does your energy go? They go, oh, I don't know. You know, and, uh, you know, I said, well, um, if you stuck your hand in a fire a thousand times and each time you got burnt, what was burning you? They had no trouble saying, well, the fire. But then you ask them, well, if you heard the voices 10,000 times and each time after they came, your energy was drained, where did your energy go? 90% of them would say, well, I don't know. You know some of them would say the voices took it. And you could eventually lead them to that, you know, the fact that there's a one-to-one -one correlation between that energy drain and the voices attacking them. And the voices hate that. You know, any when I was working in the emergency room the last 10 years of my career, I was doing psych crisis and they didn't want you helping people there. They, they wanted you getting them out of the ER. That's it. Clear the ER of these psych patients. We don't know what to do with them. Find somewhere else to put them. Just get them out of our ER. You know, send them somewhere, get them to the mental health center, have their family take them home or admit them. But get them out of the ER. So they didn't want you spending time with these people. So one of the most important things for schizophrenics to know is that these voices are parasites. They're energetically draining them. You know, they're stealing their life energy. And they don't just do it to schizophrenics. They do it to all of us. Mm -hmm. you know? And could what that they... be attributed to any other, attributed to any other, some, some process that would be draining them of energy, just, just to kind of throw you a devil's advocate? Um, is there any pushback on that saying like, well, maybe, you know, the, the, the brain is functioning more, processing more and expending energy or anything like that? No, I thought for years that it was because of the, um, the intense anxiety that these things cause. I mean, if you had a voice in your head telling you 24 hours a day, you're rotten, we're going to kill you, uh, we're going to murder you, uh, you're going to die, uh, uh, you're going to get cancer, you're no good, you're rotten, you're stupid, you're ugly, you can't. I mean, you, you hear that 24 hours a day, you, you, you would think that that would drain your energy. You know? And that's what I believed for about a decade, maybe mm -hmm. more, until one day I was working at the prison uh, in the psych department. And I was assigned to two units. One was a, uh, a medium custody unit. The other was the jail for the prison. Okay. So the worst of the worst went there. Mm -hmm. And uh, one day I came into my office and there was a, um, a inmate letter from one of the inmates at, the, at that jail. Okay. He was going, my roommate's nuts. He's talking to voices all night. He's pacing the room. He's standing and looking over me at three in the morning. He's crazy as a bed bug. I can't deal with this. Come and help me out. And then I got a, uh, a phone call from the, the captain of that unit saying, uh, hey, you need to come over and see these two guys. They're, you know, there's a mess in that cell. The other guy was completely psychotic. You know? um, 
and I looked up the records of both of them. The psychotic guy had been psychotic for a long time. The other guy who put in the letter, he was in there for uh, protective custody because he snitched out the Aryan Mafia, one of the violent gangs on the prison yard. And they lost a bunch of drugs and the administration broke up the gang and sent him to all these other prisons all over the state. So they wanted him dead. They'd already stabbed him once. And he was in there for protective custody because you're you're in that cell 23 hours a day. You only can come out for one day or one hour out in a caged cell to get some sunshine. That's it. So they wanted him dead so bad that they actually got people who got in trouble just to get thrown into that jail so they could have a chance to kill this guy. And they were in there and they were throwing notes under his door saying, we're here waiting for you. We're going to get you first chance we get. We're, we're, we're right here. Hmm. So here's this guy being threatened by the, the gangsters and living with a florid psychotic. You can't be under more stress than that. You know, right. thinking that, well, this psychotic might kill me anytime, but if they don't, here's the gangsters out there waiting to kill me. So I went over there and took a look and I, I pulled the, uh, this guy out first, the one, the, the sane guy who the gangsters were after. I looked up his record. He snitched off the mafia and, uh, you know, like I said, they want them dead. He was there for protective custody and watched him come out of his cell. He had plenty of energy. I mean, he bounded up the stairs. He didn't have to use the handrail. He was, walked bris briskly to the interview room, sat down. He was nervous. You know, he was a bit paranoid, but he, he wasn't drained of energy. He had plenty of energy. You know, he was coherent. Uh, his, his, uh, speech was coherent you know he had plenty of energy so after i finished with him he still, he was like begging me you got to help me <laughs> get me out of that cell and uh you know then i pulled up the psychotic guy and he was he was hearing a lot of voices and he just drug himself up those steps he, he shuffled to the interview room and just slouched down in his chair he spoke very slowly he was somewhat coherent he, he admitted he was hearing lots of voices, and he had no energy whatsoever. Now, there wasn't a more perfect experimental setup than that. They had the same food. They had the same cell. <clears throat> they had the same guards. You know, everything else was equalized. Yeah. Has there ever been a case where one person affected the other person and they started hearing voices? That happens all the time with uh, psychotic parents. Really? You know, they'll say, oh, yeah, it's genetic. No, it's not genetic. It's because the, the psychotic parent will create the conditions in their son or daughter that allows these voices to um, thrive. Wow. You know, and I've seen that over and over again in my career also. So there's like 23. When I saw that, I walked out of the jail that, that time and I went, it's not the anxiety. You know, something else is going on with a one-to-one -one correspondence between the vo the energy disappearing from schizophrenics after they hear the voices, you know, after the voices attack them. You know, one-to-one -one correspondence. Every time the voices come, they're drained of energy. Eventually, they'll figure it out, but you got to point it out to them first. See, and what I saw in the emergency room is 
if if I could do something to help these people, and one of the best things I could do is to point out to them that the voices were parasites and were draining their energy. So if you had a leech on you sucking your blood, would you just sit there and watch it? No, no you'd want to get rid of it. The voices got extremely upset when I went to tell the patient that they were parasites and that they were draining their energy. And once they realized it, then they knew they had to do something about the voices, that they weren't hallucinations. They were after their energy. You know? So they energetically drain their victims. That's another pattern they run. They get louder after sunset. They get louder when ignored. Okay? And I've heard psychiatrist after psychiatrist tell these patients, oh, just ignore them. They're hallucinations. You know, I remember the first time I heard that, I pulled that patient back a week later. I said, how's that going for you? You know, I was in the office when you when the psychiatrist told you to ignore the voices. He said, it's not working at all. They get louder when you ignore them. And that patient after patient after patient said the same thing. You can't ignore them. They foster self-destructive behavior. And schizophrenics kill themselves at three to five times higher, a higher rate than the normal population. You know, they will get the person to sabotage themselves. Uh, they will create as much turmoil, suffering, and conflict as possible. You know, they don't want the person to succeed. They foster isolation. So most of these schizophrenics, uh, the voices will tell them, get away from your parents, you know, cause a bunch of trouble, and just go lock yourself in the room and stay away from them. They're not your friends. That's the worst thing you can do. But they will foster isolation. They they don't want to be around people. You know, they demand the attention of the victims. You can't ignore them. They will maneuver or increase control over their victims. They will gaslight them. They will manipulate perception. So, you know, if the schizophrenic's walking down the street and some people are laughing uh, across the street, the voices will tell them, hey, they're laughing at you. you know? They have access to the schizophrenic's memory. They can bring up every every memory of every rotten thing they ever did and rub it in their face. Now, what's really strange is that they sound just like the normal thoughts that run through your head every day. Okay? They don't sound any different for the most part. There isn't any, like, they don't get any deep, big voice or the voices. It sounds just like your normal thoughts. You know, so, but the intent and the content are very different. You know, so, you know, Sherry Sweeney, the uh, co-author <clears throat> with my book, she heard voices when she was a youngster and, and suffered with them for years. They almost killed her. Um, she said every negative thought you get about yourself or anybody else comes from the dark side. It comes from these these voices. So it's not just the schizophrenics who hear them. We all hear them. Yeah. The schizophrenics are plagued with them. Okay? They don't want the victim to tell any uh, others about their presence. They go, don't tell anybody. You know, don't just keep it to yourself. They'll lock you up. They're consummate liars. You can't believe anything the voices say. Nothing. They won't keep any bargain. Uh, they had one patient where they they told him, you, you gouge out your eye and uh, we'll leave you alone. We'll go away. We won't bother you anymore. So he gouged out his eye. Soon as he did, they came back and went, "You stupid fool! You listened to us. You know what an idiot you are. You know now you got you you maimed yourself for life. You're gonna look like a freak. You know everybody's gonna avoid you. Look what you did. You're stupid. Wow. That's the kind of that's the kind of entity you're dealing with here. 
They don't want the victim to feel joy. They steer them away from anything that gives them pleasure. Um, they can manipulate feeling without speaking. They can short-circuit reason. Uh, if you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. They pass themselves off as thoughts belonging to the victim. That's where they're very dangerous because I had a number of patients that would ask the voices, who are you? What are you? And their response was, we are you. So it can get you to believe that those those thoughts inserted into your mind by them are you. They got you because they believe you believe that those thoughts are you. You know, so you're going to act on them, yeah. and then you're going to get into trouble. You know, they they cause selective forgetting. Um, a lot of the schizophrenic patients I work with, if they don't write down what I ask them to do to fight against the voices. They'll have forgotten it by the end of the session. They fill the they fill the person's mind with negative thoughts about themselves and everybody else. It's everybody else's fault. They'll destroy any sense of positive self concept. Oh, they'll pull you away from consensual reality. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. The <clears throat> the important thing is they try to pass themselves off as thoughts belonging to the victim. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now they hit everybody that way, you know. It's it's, you know, I don't know how many people I've talked to, and it happened to me a number of times too, where you're just walking along, minding your own business, and you get this thought running through your head: is you know, why don't you punch this guy in the head, or uh, uh, why don't you drive into oncoming traffic, or what would it be like to jump off this bridge? You know, All I right. remember there there was last year I was out in in Arizona. We, <laughs> We don't have law, lawns for the most part. We go out with a machete and cut the cactus down to kind of keep them from overrunning the property. So I was out with a machete. I was chopping cactus, cutting cactus. And I have this beautiful uh, pure white husky that doesn't belong in the, in the desert at all. And she runs by and here's this thought just explodes in my head, chop her head off. And I'm like shocked. I'm like, what? 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 You know, it's like, where did that come from? That That's not my Very, thought. Doesn't belong to me. And it, it, you know, it upset me just to have that thought. Yeah. That's, that's them. Hmm. They hit everybody that way. You know, they, they suggest that you do stupid, crazy things that would get you in trouble. And it sounds just like your thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we all but have the intent like that, right? Sometimes right. like what the, what? <laughs> right. Yeah. But the intent is not yours. Yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned Jerry um, that the, this exacerbates after sunset. Do you know yes. what what the reason is behind that? Maybe. Well, the same thing happened in uh, uh, old folks' homes. You know, when I was working psych for you know doing psych evaluations in old folks' homes, they called it sundowner syndrome. Huh. All the old people would start getting crazy after sunset, and the voices get strongest at three o'clock in the morning, from three to four. That's when they get strongest. That's when they have the most control. 
and the schizophrenics will tell you, yeah, yeah, they wake me up with a nightmare at three in the morning and uh, I can't get back to sleep. And then they start on me. You know, you're stupid. You're crazy. You're ugly. Yeah. But that's just. So, the, so these are patterns that these things run. Okay. Okay. So this is the iron filings equivalent to a magnet. You know, everybody can see these patterns. Again, if the voices are running patterns, they can't be random bullcrap. You know, something is is something is running those patterns. Otherwise, they would be random. It, it's interesting when you think about that, right? Because like in in popular lore for for centuries, like we've always heard about these negative entities, like vampires, dark whatever dark beings being afraid of the sun, right? Like right. The sun is always their their sort of nemesis. So it makes me it makes me think of that when you know if they're being exacerbated after after the sun goes down. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. These things are negative entities. They have a consciousness of their own. Mm -hmm. You know, they invade the consciousness of schizophrenics, and then try to take over. You know, by by telling them, you know, the the last thing they want a schizophrenic to know is that they're they're parasites, and that what they're telling them does not come from the schizophrenic himself. It's coming from outside them. And where do thoughts come from? Psychiatry, psychology don't ever answer that question. They never attempted to. It was too difficult for them. They, they, they got bogged down in all this theological stuff. So what they did is they studied behavior. That's what psychologists do. They study behavior. Yeah. So they have these, these behavior modification things to modify behavior. All the psychiatric drugs do is just you know, control behavior. Mm -hmm. They don't get to the cause of anything. You know, they don't fix anything. Like sugar pills. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, I remember uh, one psychiatrist I talked to at the state hospital. He said uh, the major part of the effect of these antipsychotic drugs is the belief that they work right you know, he, he said that they they're not as effective as you would think and i said well why don't you just uh, save yourself the money and give them sugar pills and uh he said no then nothing would work you know if they found out that the the big part of the effectiveness of these drugs uh, was was the belief that they work that would be it you know and I read somewhere that the worse that the pill tastes and the more expensive it is, the better it, that that uh, <laughs> that that effect is. Wow, the power of the mind. Yeah, I think power that of the mind to do with everything. Yeah, I talked to Colin A. Ross on the show before, and he said the same thing. He said it's about yeah, it's really just dependent on on what you believe because it's about as good as a sugar pill. That's amazing, considering how many people like really believe in antidepressants and and how much they're doled out to people. Oh yeah, they're, they're making a fortune on them. Let me see. The antidepressant market in the U.S. is expected to hit fifteen point nine eight billion by two thousand twenty three. That's billion, and that's just in the U.S. And what kind of you know, adverse effects do those have? Well, they're not as dangerous as the antipsychotics. You know. They'll they gork you out. They, what they do is they're they're like the attenuation or on a on a stereo. They knock out your highs, they knock out your lows, and you just kind of stay in the middle. You know, so you're not feeling the full range of emotion. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, global antipsychotic sales were at 14.54 billion in 2021 and expected to reach 15.5 billion by 2022. These guys are in it for the money. They're not in it to help people. They're in it to control them. And <clears throat> these the, that's all these drugs do. I mean, there for sure, there's people who need these drugs. I mean, it's psychotics who are very violent, you know, very antisocial, um, assaultive, and out of control. They need these drugs. Now, there's others that I would not be able to reach if they weren't on these drugs. But there's a new therapy that's come out on the, uh, it came out in Australia. It's called the MACE Energy System. It works better than any other psychotherapy I've ever seen in my entire career. Okay. And it's an energetic therapy. So, you know, thoughts are energetic, emotions are energetic, uh, uh, feelings are energetic. These drugs are physical. They don't cure anything. The MACE energy method cures a, a vast array of psychological problems and cures them, gets rid of them. But they, you know, the MACE people took it to the, the university. The university there said, oh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll adopt it if, uh, if you give us the copyright. They said, no, no, no way. <laughs> you know, MACE spent his whole life putting this system together. There were there were a small group of them that uh, figured out how to get where trauma is buried and how to get rid of it, and it's 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 very different. It doesn't even resemble classical psychotherapy, but it works like a charm. I mean, it, it I've never seen anything work as well. I've been using it for the last uh, three years, and very effective for most stuff. It's not as effective for schizophrenics but it will help them, you know? Um, but, you know, these drugs should only be used temporarily and then something like MACE go into place. And there's MACE therapists all over the planet right now. They're growing. I mean, they're realizing the effectiveness of this stuff. Um, but it, it should only be a stopgap measure. It shouldn't be used full time because it rots out your brain. It rots out your peripheral nervous system and you, it turns you into a zombie. You're not handling your own problems. The drug is handling them for you. Right. Well, how does the MACE system actually work? Well, <clears throat> what MACE found is that, well, people believe, you know, it's generally believed that their people are composed of three parts, body, mind, and spirit. John MACE found that there's a fourth essential part, and that's an identity. No, there's negative identities, there's positive identities. The positive identities were created on purpose to help you survive in some way. So you have a positive identity as a, a podcaster, you have a positive identity as a car driver, you know, you have a, a positive identity of whatever you do for work. Mm -hmm. These are all positive identities that you've created to help you survive in the world. But he, he found that during a trauma, a negative identity is consistently created unconsciously. So during a trauma, what happens is your your attention turns on you. You know, so all your attention is on you in a trauma. And you make a decision as to, you know, what part you played in that trauma. You know, you know how did you get there? What did you do to get there? What's your fault? Who are you in relation to this trauma? 
and you will make a unconscious decision as to who you are in relation to this trauma. You know, like I'm no good or I'm I'm rotten or I'm worthless or uh, you know, some negative decision is made. Now, and there's a negative feeling that goes with it. So that negative feeling does not feel good. So what happens, the ego steps in and it goes, well, let me handle this. And it takes it and it buries that feeling and that, you know, in in the subconscious. Okay. And it's buried alive. It's not buried dead. So say you were abused by your father and your father was this particular kind of guy. Okay. The ego takes that, it buries it in the subconscious and takes energy to hold it there. Okay. So anytime somebody like that father shows up on the scene, there's a reaction. It's either fight or flight. So you're either going to fight with that person who shows up or you're going to run from them or you're going to avoid them. Okay. And that will go on over and over and be triggered your entire life. Every time it triggers, it grows until you believe that it's a part of you, you know, that. Uh, you know, well, just so happens every time I get around one of these kind of people, I just can't stand them. So I just got to get away, away from them, you know, but you have enough of those triggers and they're controlling you. You're not controlling them okay? because they're reacting subconsciously. You don't even know they're there, you know? So what Mace has found was a way to get in there and dissolve these traumas, you know? Once the energy is removed from them, they're like a car battery, okay? So it's every time they go off, they're charged. But if you drain them completely, just like a car battery, if you drain it down to zero, it's done. You can't charge it back up again. That's why they don't want you to leave your car battery ever drained to, to zero. Well, these negative identities are like that too. If you drain their energy all the way out of them to zero, they're gone. They're totally out of your universe. When, when, when you're finished with the session, they remember what happened. They remember what their father did to them, but it no longer bothers them. Mm. There's no longer a reaction. It's more of a response. Yeah. And a lot of them, a lot of people who uh, went through this with me, they'd say, yeah, I ask them, well, how do you feel about this person after we're done? And they'll go, well, I just, I feel sorry for them. I, they're pathetic. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, it's not that hatred. It's not that that burning. Uh, you know, I can't stand them. I hate, I hate them kind of thing. It's it's now, you know, I I feel sorry for them. Yeah. And so, and all this can this can be done in in an hour. You really? know, the, the the major ones can be gotten rid of in an hour. Mm-hmm. Is it focusing on focusing the... on that negative identity? Uh huh. So Mace found you can turn that negative identity into an image. He found that you can turn concepts, you can t- you can turn trauma, you can turn um, uh, ideas and concepts into an image. And if you can turn it into an image, you can get rid of it. So it's a total. It, it's totally different from any other kind of psychotherapy on the planet, and it works. And believe me, I've been, <laughs> I've, I went through. You know what is it? Eight years of of college and graduate school. Mm-hmm. They have nothing that works like a, like the Mace method does. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and and the psychiatric mafia don't want this out there. You know the the schools don't want this out there. The they don't they 
They don't want something to, that helps people, that cures them, because they're making billions of dollars on selling these drugs, which they're telling people is the only treatment for these diseases. For, they're not diseases, for these mental, uh, mental problems. But they've it's acknowledged crazy. this system at least, right? No, they don't even acknowledge it. They totally ignore it. Wow. That's amazing. So it's not like they really want to help people. No, they don't want to help people. They want, yeah, they don't make money by helping people. They make money selling drugs. Mm -hmm. They're a drug cartel, I think. They're, they're a drug cartel. They're part of it. You know, matter of fact, that DSM of theirs, that's uh, that's completely made up also. Yeah. You know, so. How do they come up with those? They make them up. Really? All those, yeah, all those orders are made up. There's, there's segments of behavior. You know, so you, you look at, let me read you some statistics first. Now, these are, these are kids that the, the psychiatric mafia and the drug companies, uh, these are the statistics. And these are, these are old, you know, they're from 2017. It's higher now. More than 7.2 million kids are on psychiatric drugs right now. And these drugs cure nothing. Oh my gosh. And a lot of them do a lot of damage. 622, more than 622,000 are under the age of five. 80,000, over 80,000 are on ADHD drugs, which is amphetamines. And I've talked to prisoners over and over again who were started off on ADHD drugs and just kept taking more and more and more and then graduated to street meth. You know? So they're giving these kids amphetamines. Over 38,000 kids, I mean, these are children, are on antidepressant drugs. They don't cure anything. Now get this, over 85,000 are on antipsychotic drugs. These are the drugs that rot out your brain, that rot out your peripheral nervous system. They're giving them to over 85,000 kids in the United States right now. Over over 389,000 are on anti-anxiety drugs. These are addictive drugs. This is your psychiatric mafia at work. Uh -huh. You know, your drug cartels, your, your, your big pharma companies. And do you yeah. think kids with hyperactivity and all that attention deficit, do you think they're just being kids and they just kind of... Yeah, yeah, I think the, the, the overwhelming majority of them are just kids. Mm-hmm. You know, Just now I have, I have problem. seen, I have seen the, you know, the Ritalin and so I, I've seen it work. I mean, there's an opposite reaction that most people get. So if you're ADHD and you take a Ritalin tab, it calms you down. It slows you down, it, even though it's an amphetamine. Mm -hmm. you know, but the problem is if, if they start abusing it, it will lead to addiction. Mm. You know, you talk about a gateway drug. It's a gateway drug. So you, you were asking about uh, psychiatry's Bible, their their DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Mm -hmm. It's this big, fat manual with all these diagnoses in it, all these mental illnesses. All of them were made up. Not one of them has any kind of test to verify. There's no kind of clinical test. There's no lab test. There's There's no valid test to test for any of these diagnoses. You know, they, these, all this, this group of psychiatrists get together once every three years and two thirds of them are associated with big pharma and they go, okay, what kind of diagnoses can we make up that we can treat with these drugs and get more patients?
You know, you see it on television, you turn it on every every day, all these drug commercials coming up with these weird named drugs that <laughs> for, for these illnesses that you never knew existed. Right. Well, and people are always happy in the commercial and at the end yep, they tell you that you're yep. going to get like anal leakage or something. So this, this DSM is a complete work of fiction. You know, they made these things up and it looks official. I mean, here's these, you know, all these psychobabble words and then under there is category one, category two, category, and they're teaching it like it's the Bible and the, and the uh, uh, masters and, and PhD programs. It's like it's sacred. You know, mm -hmm. it's sacred because they need it to make a diagnosis to collect insurance. Right. That's, that's one of its all. main purposes mm -hmm. is to collect insurance. And if the diagnosis, you know, insurance companies will pay for this one, they'll pay for that one. So every single one of the 296 psychiatric disorders in the DSM-5 and later have been completely made up by a group of psychiatrists. The list of fabricated mental disorders appears to be increasing astronomically with each edition. In 1952, the DSM listed 106 psychiatric disorders. In 1980, it jumped to 256 psychiatric disorders. The DSM-5 lists 297, almost 300. You know, and I bet you the DSM-6 is going to be over, over 300. You know. Every mental disorder in the DSM is defined by a list of behavioral symptoms and that committees of psychiatrists have debated and decided that they, they uh, uh, relate to clusters of symptoms that add up to labels of mental disorders. Right? So they made them up. Two-thirds of the psychiatrists are on the board responsible for making up these psychiatric disorders have been reported to have ties to the pharmaceutical industry. Not one of these 297 mental disorders has a defining diagnostic lab test. Not one. Wow. There are no blood tests. There are no lab tests. There's no x-rays. These are just classes of behaviors that a group of psychiatrists have voted to be a mental disorder. Okay, and that's that's by Dr. Julian Whitaker, who's a psychiatrist. If tests ex, uh, existed, which pointed to a true diagnosis of a true condition, those tests would be published in the DSM. They aren't because they don't exist. This is an amazing system. If you're trying to get rich, if you're a pharma com company and you're trying to get rich and constantly keep people on drugs, having that as the protocol for everything, I yeah. mean, it feeds back into your wallet. <laughs> oh yeah that's why the two-thirds of the committee is made up of, of drug-related psychiatrists who are most likely being paid off from the, by those guys and, and i always hated about how um you know psychotherapy it's always about a diagnosis like you have to have a diagnosis right right, uh, right. and and then like you it gives you this belief about that diagnosis as well and so it just kind of like exacerbates you know even if you don't have whatever they're saying you have like you'll you'll go on to believe that and you become like a victim of that and it becomes your identity you know what i mean right yep that's bad that's one of the bad aspects of it mm -hmm. it really is like spell casting in a lot in a lot of ways it's like diagnose having a diagnosis for even in you know regular allopathic medicine yeah it's destructive mm -hmm. you know it's a Here's here's a, a chemist from Eli Lilly. The, this Eli Lilly is the company that made up uh, the biochemical imbalance theory. Okay, this guy's speaking the truth. 
He said they are selling drugs to people under false premises, under a disease that's been invented. So how do you measure the efficacy among a disease that doesn't even exist? Sean Ellison, former drug research chemist at Eli Lilly. Another psychiatrist. There is no blood test. There is no lab test. There's no x-ray. The DSM are just classes of behaviors that a group of psychiatrists have voted to be a disease. You know, using the made-up psychiatric disorders in the DSM and totally unsubstantiated propaganda, you know, the mental disorders are due to a chemical imbalance in the brain. You know, they're making billions of dollars based on that. Wow. It's tied to everything. People don't really tie it to everything. It's all money. Yeah. You know, they're not trying to help people. They're, they're, it's money. And as far as, so as far as these, you know, entities, um, do you, do you see it in any other conditions besides schizophrenia or is it mainly schizophrenia? Well, meth, you know, and, uh, you know, there's other classes of schizophrenia like, um, they have a whole class of schizophrenics, the different types of schizophrenia. Um, schizoaffective is one of them. So in those classes, um, you know, meth, I, I've seen more people go psychotic on meth than any other drug. You know, a number on cocaine, but meth, they, the prisoners called meth the devil's drug. Wow. Okay. Um and, you know, they'd start taking it, they'd start hearing the voices, and they go, oh, that's just a hallucination. And then when they, they sobered up, the voices went away. So they went, that that seemed to reinforce their theory that it was a hallucination. Mm -hmm. So that might have happened a dozen or so times or maybe more. And then one day, the voices don't go away. And they're just as psychotic as anybody in the mental hospital. The prison was full of meth addicts who went psychotic. So they can't function out there anymore. So they, they rob and they steal to survive. And then they end up in prison. What about alcohol? And um, and also wanted to ask you about psychedelics, if that has an effect. Yeah, alcohol has its own entity. You know, they don't call it spirits for nothing. Uh, exactly, right. You know, so you know, I've, I've heard from a number of patients that actually could see once they get drunk to a certain point, uh, an alcoholic spirit would jump in there and take over the drinking. Wow. You know, I had one, uh, this guy was like a, he was like an evil Indian medicine man. He was an Apache. He came down from, he was so violent that the uh, Apache police couldn't handle him. So they, they brought him down to our prison. And, uh, you know, I remember he, he crashed right through the, the, the whole system. I mean, he didn't stop at, at Alhambra for a, uh, diagnosis and classification. He came right down to my prison unit. I knew he was coming and I watched him just crash through the system. So when he got here, I pulled him in and I'm, I'm like, well, I got to talk to this guy. I've never, I've never spoken to anybody like this from the, the native culture before. And, uh, you know, I was interested in him, but when I brought him in, you know, you could just see the hatred. He hated white people. He just hated them. I could feel it just rolling off him. And, uh, you know, okay. After I said, well, I'm, I'm your psych. I'll, I'll be watching over you. You're on psych drugs, so I have to monitor you. I'll be calling you in once a month. So it was like six months before I could talk to this guy for 20 minutes. You know? mm -hmm. So finally, after I established a relationship with him, 
I started asking them questions about well, what, what did you do and, and what are these spirits and how do they operate and you know what do you do with them and you know he was telling me all these story, unbelievable stories about being chased by them uh, casting spells with them um, being attacked by them uh, you know all this stuff and uh, you know <clears throat> I finally asked him I said uh, you know well if you if you can do all this kind of stuff how come you can't stay sober? And he said, it's because of the spirits of dead alcoholics. He said they haven't transitioned to the other side yet. They still want to get drunk. They still want to get high, but they can't get high in a spiritual form. And he said they have to jump into somebody who's drinking, and yeah. then they take over the drinking. So, you know, that plays in with, uh, you know, um, you can't have one drink. You can't even have one drink, you know. Because then they take over the drinking, you know, so so the person who's drinking is drinking for not only himself, but for these spirits who are craving alcohol also. And I've heard, you know, numerous uh, uh, witnesses who, who said they saw these spirits jump into alcoholics once they got drunk to a certain point. So they're almost like ne these negative thought forms that like, are, they're, they're still addicted, like these... Yes. Addicted negative thought forms. Yeah, they're still addicted. Wow. Now, you know, I told you before I had um, uh, a, a transcript of when I was, um, see, when I got in trouble at the state hospital for questioning schizophrenics about their voices. You know, yep. when psychiatry found out, they called me into the office and I was told the voices are uh, hallucinations. And by asking the patients questions about them, you're reinforcing their hallucinations and you're making them worse. I got that from two different psychiatrists. I was ordered to stop. Mm. So I had to be very careful with questioning schizophrenics at the state hospital. On top of that, psychiatrists were being attacked by them at a, at a rate higher than any other any, anybody else on the staff. You know, higher than psychiatric nurses, they were being attacked by schizophrenics at the same rate as attendants who were working 24 hours a day with them. You know, and that never made any sense to me. You know, until after seven years, I figured that one out. You know, the voices don't like those meds because they they slow down the patient. They don't want them drugged up. They don't want them calm. They want them upset and generating a lot of negative emotional energy that they feed off of. And those drugs prevent that from happening. Hmm. What they are, major, they're major tranquilizers, really. That's what they are. You know, they just calm the person down Yeah. The while they're destroying their brain. Yeah. Yeah. So you want me to read you this, this transcript from... Uh, it was a patient, an interesting patient I was working with who's psychotic. He gave me this information, uh, I think, after he, he recovered. So I got, at the, I got in trouble at the prison when psychotics started recovering. You know, oh. they would go off their meds. They, they would stop taking their meds, and they were still okay. But the, the psychiatrist was going, why would you stop your meds? You need to be on them for a lifetime. And they're going, no, you don't. No, I don't. I'm, I'm done. The voices are gone. Well, what happened? Well, you know, Marzinski did something. I mean, da, 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 da. and then they started investigating me because these guys weren't ever supposed to recover. Wow. You know, they were investigating me for experimenting with prisoners without the, without departmental permission. I thought they would be happy 
that these people were off their meds and acting normally again, they wouldn't have to come back to prison again. It was the exact opposite. Mm. They went nuts. You know, they did everything they could to stop me. You know, yeah, well, finally, finally, I just had to retire because it was just getting too intense. Yeah, yeah that seems to be the case of a lot of doctors who, who try to go outside the, the system. Yeah. So here they are paying thousands of dollars for these meds when people could be cured. They didn't want it happening. They were passing around like demons. You know, it was like like they had ants in their pants when they found out that people were were recovering from schizophrenia, which wasn't supposed to happen. You know, it doesn't happen in a great number of cases, but it does happen. And a number of others can be gotten. They can be made better. Hmm. OK, so what do you want me to yeah. You want me to read this this transcript? Please, yeah. Okay. Um, so here I'm working with a, a client. Like I told you, I, I can't remember anything else in my life like I could remember. If I wrote down these what, these what happened in these sessions within 24 hours, I could remember it word for word. You know? But if it went past 24 hours, I would start forgetting it. So here's a transcript from a uh, – he's a prisoner who had a massive arrest record. You know, massive. It's pages worth, you know, and he finally went psychotic on drugs and they threw him in the prison. And I was questioning him about the voices. So. Yeah, I'm asking him, I said, I remember you telling me that these voices knew stuff that you didn't. He said, yeah, they would tell me where to fish, uh, where to bait. So. So we're, what happened here is this this guy, uh, he, he was psychotic. The voices told him, um, well, while he was psychotic and he was hearing them, they told him, uh, you know, take all the money you got. We know where there's a, a Sesamelia pot field up in Oregon. <laughs> and we'll, sh we'll show you where it is. So they told him, get two burlap sats, get a machete, and take all the money you got, and uh, we'll show you where this field is. So he listened to him, and he drove from San Diego all the way up to the mountains of Oregon, listening to where the voices were telling him to go the entire time. Okay. So when he when he got, <clears throat> he drove down like a 23-mile dirt road, ended up at the base of a mountain, and he, he then said, well, there's no more road. What do I do now? And the voices told him, you know, get out of the car. There's a hiking trail over to your right or your left. And uh, take your burlap sacks, take your machete, and just keep walking up that, that trail. So a few hours later, he came to this giant sesamelia pot field. You know? And uh, he started cutting down the, 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 the pot, putting it in these burlap sacks, and then walked back down to the um, car again. And then he asked the voices, well, what do I do with it? The voices said, well, we know a park where you can sell it. You know? So the voices told him where the park was, and he's out there selling this pot, making a fortune. And he was buying, you know, I asked him, well, what'd you do with all the money? He said, well, I bought all the prostitutes I could handle. I bought all the drugs I could handle, bought all the alcohol I could handle. And then he said, the voices were, were fishermen. They wanted to go fishing. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. No, he said, no, no. They wanted to go fishing. He said, I went out to the Columbia River with them. Nobody was catching anything except me. I would throw the hook where they told me to. 
I'd, I'd move it to where they told me to. I'd stay in these different places as long as they said to. And I was the only one catching fish. And he said, I caught a ton of fish. He said that the voices loved catching fish. So, you know, that sounded a little strange to me. That's crazy. And uh, he, he went he went on doing that for like a month. You know, when he ran out of money, he'd go back up and cut some more pot down. And then on the third time, he was about to go up there. And the voices said, no, don't go up there. They're waiting for you. You go up there, they'll kill you. They know you've been stealing their pot. They're waiting for you. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the voices said, get your money and go back to San Diego. And he, he left Oregon with a good bit more money than what he, what he came there for. You know what he came there with. So here I'm. I'm, I'm questioning him about these voices that mm. were telling him this this stuff. Okay. And I said, uh, I remember you telling me that these voices knew stuff that you didn't. He said, Yeah, they would tell me where to fish, what bait to use, irrespective of what everybody else was using. And I would follow their advice, and I would catch fish when nobody else was. Nobody else was. He said, Tons of them. I said, did you have any other similar experiences with regard to the voices telling you supernatural things? He said, yes. Uh, they would go home with my girlfriend and tell me everything she was doing at night. The strongest voice told me one night, I'm going home with her. In the morning, he came back and told me that she dyed her hair. He also told me that she was masturbating and had a set of sex toys in her dresser. I, I asked him, did you check that out? He said, yeah, I asked her and she admitted it. I said, how did, how did you go about asking her such a thing? He said, I just asked her, do you have any toys you play with? She said, what do you mean? I said, you know, toys that you play with, ones that you keep next to your bed. She was, she was real shy, but admitted she did. Did she wonder how you knew that? He said, no, she didn't say anything else said, remember when you were telling me about the voices telling you where to find the marijuana fields in Oregon, the time you followed their instructions and drove all the way up to, uh, from San Diego to Oregon to find the pot fields, they were telling you, they were telling you about, he said, yeah, I remember it, said, did they also tell you where to sell the marijuana that you cut from the fields? He said, yeah, they told me uh, to go sell it at a national park around the lakes and rivers. They told me exactly which people to approach. Oh, I forgot about that part. Hmm. Were they people? Uh, were there any people they told you to approach that you might have thought wouldn't smoke pot like old people? He said no. I did a good bit of selling the pot. I made it up to Oregon with barely enough money to pay for gas and returned with four hundred dollars. I remember you telling me that when the voices got very strong, they hung out outside of your body. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate? Elaborate. He said, yeah, they stick out of my body. It kind of like part of them is out and looking around. When they leave totally, I can feel them gone. They aren't talking and they aren't there. When they fade out uh, to the inside, I can feel them in there. It was like they were in the same house, but they closed the door. When they left my body it was and went outside, they were totally gone. I asked them, where did they go? One time the strongest one went to a mall. I'd been searching for a type of fancy blue jean. I couldn't find them anywhere. The strongest one volunteered to go find them for me. How long was he gone? Hours. Did you get the feeling that they they walk like we do, or do they fly? He said they fly. 
And the strongest voice came back in a few hours and told you exactly where to find your special pair of blue jeans that you wanted. He came back and told me about a place. When I went there, the salesman told me that they didn't have them in stock, but he could order them. And I asked him, I've had several other patients who told me that the voices they heard did not like them having girlfriends. Were the relationships you got into with females threatening to them? He said, sometimes yes and sometimes no. The girlfriends I had that I wanted to spend the most time with, they were the ones who were the most threatening to them. They just wanted to drug them and steal and drink. So the the, the so the women who were trying to form a real relationship with you were the ones who threatened them the most. Yeah, I had a girlfriend once who heard voices also. I could tell she was hearing the voices before I met her. Were you attracted to her? She said, yes and no. She told me that if I kissed another girl, she would kill me. She always knew where to find me and always knew what I was doing. She had ESP. She knew my excuses before I could even get them out of my mouth. How long did that relationship last? Three years. Her knowing everything was spooky. How did your voices get along with the ones she was hearing? They didn't talk to one another. Were your voices aware of the existence of your girlfriend's voices? Yes, but they didn't talk. The voices in both of us ignored each other. They didn't battle with each other for control? No. She knew shit about me, and I knew shit about her. Stuff nobody else knew? Said yes. Did you guys fight a lot? Did you surprise each other with what you knew about each other? He said, you mean like did this slimy thing, uh, like I did this slimy thing 10 years ago? No, it was more like I knew for certain she was, when she was lying, uh, that she was lying, no matter how insistent she was that she wasn't lying. I knew that she had cheated on old boyfriends. I knew when she wanted to get married, or I knew she wanted to get married, and I knew one day she was going to move off to Oregon. One day she did just that. Did she tell you she was leaving? She wanted me to go with her. I told her I wasn't ready. So her voices knew uh, what you were doing that she might not like, and vice versa. Your voices knew what she was doing behind your back. Her voices would tell her uh, who I was with, what I was doing, and what the girl was, uh, and what girl I was with uh, looked like, what the girl I was with looked like uh, when I cheated on her. What did she do when the voices reported on your other relationships with females? She threw a fit. She had a terrible temper. Did she ever admit to you that you were seeing other women behind her back? <clears throat> she told me that I didn't have to admit to what I was doing. She already knew. One night, she even knew the name of the girl I was just cheating with. Did you guys ever beat up one another? She hit me once. She liked to be spanked. Brenda was her name. She was beautiful. We would walk into a place and all the guys would turn and look, uh, turn their heads and look. How old was she at the time? 21. She would hang out in the bars. What did you guys talk about most of the time? Well, I don't know, whatever came up. Who cheated on who the most? Said, I did. What effect did that have? Nothing drastic as long as I gave her preference and I didn't skip on sex with her. What were the voices doing when you were having sex? Said, they enjoyed it. They knew exactly what the woman wanted, where they wanted to be touched, when and for how long, and what to do next. 
you think the same thing was going on with your girlfriend? He said, yeah. And the voices you were hearing and her voices never spoke to one another? No, but her voices were very strong. You weren't afraid of her voices? No, but I respected them. What, what is the strangest thing that ever happened between you two? Just knowing when the other was cheating. Did you ever try to interfere when she, you knew she was cheating? I said, no. Could you have? No, I didn't care. I had so many other women. I didn't care if she had sex with other men. It's amazing you didn't come up with some kind of sexually transmitted disease. Did the voices tell you which of your partners were clean or not? He said, yes, they sure did. I never got a disease, and I was with hundreds of women. I got the crabs one time. We both felt the voices were our guardian angels. We both felt sure of them at the time. So they would do all these supernatural things for you to impress you and make you think they were guardian angels as they slowly walked you into a living hell. He said, yes. Um, then he, he went into a tangent to tell me about the voices giving him an exact lottery number uh, to the $50 million lottery. He said he was tortured for weeks as to how his life could have changed had he been able to buy that lottery ticket from inside the prison. I said, did you bet on the lottery when you were outside the prison? He said, yes. Did you ever win? I said, no, but I came very close. I'm going to bet on the lottery when I get out. Okay. Wow. So that's, you know, that's kind of one of the conversations I, I had with, with these people when I was investigating the voices. What are they? How do they behave? What do they react? What do they do? What are these things? And you can see they have a separate consciousness all their own. You know, they invade the consciousness of their victims. Psychiatry and the psychiatric mafia don't want you to know any of this. You know, their drugs don't touch these things. All they do is they dumb them down. Mm -hmm. The fact that they directed him to certain places and that that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And then they're still pushing that uh, chemical imbalance stuff, even though it's been disproven, disproven, disproven over and over again. Here's a recent ad that I just got off the internet. What causes schizophrenia and does it have any triggers? Schizophrenia doesn't have a that doesn't have a single confirmed case. Experts suspect, and this is, how, this is how they work, experts suspect that several factors play a role. Experts, they don't, they don't, they don't cite <laughs> studies. It's just experts. This is just, they're, they're brainwashing the, the population. Experts suggest that several factors play a role, but none of these guarantees you'll develop schizophrenia. So, you know, it's like, what kind of role do they play? You know, there's no consistency. There's no pattern. You know, the three main reasons that schizophrenia happens include the chemical imbalances in your brain. Totally disproven. I mean, this was taken off the Internet a couple of months ago. The chemicals involved are those that your brain uses to communicate between the brain cells. No proof that it's been disproven. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just doing this to sell drugs. It's a complete and utter lie, and they're still they're still perpetuating this lie on the on an unsuspecting public. We're the experts. We'll tell you what's going on while we make uh, forty-seven point seven billion dollars a year selling you crappy drugs that are destroying your brain, mm. congenital brain problems. 
these problems that affect your brain's development before you're born. Okay, there's something to that because I've seen the voices attack people that are uh, abused and, you know, uh, functioning at a much lower level. I mean, they're easy to take over. Right? Mm. Communication disrupt disruptions between areas of the brain. Experts suspect that schizophrenia happens because those connections deteriorate. Yeah, they deteriorate, all right. They deteriorate because of their drugs. Right. So, so here they are going, schizophrenia does this, but it's their drugs that are doing this. And here they are blaming it on the schizophrenics. I mean, it's despicable what these people are doing. Yeah, it's criminal. For it's sure. criminal. On so many levels. What are the triggers, Jerry? I know you mentioned like, you know, trauma can induce this sort of entity attachment, but are there any other, is there another list of? Uh... Well, the tra trauma is the big one, physical, emotional, and sexual trauma. Yeah. That That's the big one. You know, it just kind of like cracks the shield. The, the second other one I told you about is methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just, that just cracks you wide open and they just, it's, it's like opening the door and say, come and get me, you know? Another one is having schizophrenic parents, which create the conditions for the, the, the voices to jump from the parent into the parent, into the uh, sibling, into the kid. You know, uh, and I've heard uh, a couple of times where the, the kid would feel that they would start hearing voices uh, and they would get away from the family and they completely recovered after that. Um, so wow. those are, those are the three big ones. Uh-huh. What about what do you uh, think about psychedelic usage? Do you think that there that could create like a chink in the armor at all? Well, it it does, and I've talked to a number of people where they Ouija boards is another one. Yeah, yeah, that. Ouija board Ouija boards is a big one. I've talked to a lot of people who are playing with Ouija boards and started hearing voices. They wow. started they started uh, connecting with them on the Ouija board, and then then they then they moved into their heads. Wow. Okay, what you had another question? Um, no, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about Ouija boards. That, that that's like um, because I hear I hear all over the place, various places that um, you know these people who try to channel entities or like do any kind of black magic end up contacting you know the wrong the wrong place. Um, that that it's really like a conduit for the for the sort of dark entity forces. Well, it, yeah, it is, and they'll lots of times they'll come in and play like, oh, well, I'm I'm uh, your guardian spirit, or I'm somebody that can help you, and and like you you read in the, this fellow's case, I mean, they know stuff that the person normally that couldn't know, you know. So once they convince the person that, oh yeah, we're good spirits and we're helping you out, and um, I I had a number of prisoners tell me, especially with meth. When they ran out of meth, the voices would tell them where to be and when to be there, and somebody would show up with meth, somebody they never met before, and somebody they never knew. Wow. That's incredible. It really does seem like you could contact these these entities and, and gain information. Um, there's there's I don't know if you've read through like some of the history on on this stuff, but they say even the Nazis were were contacting negative entities and that's how they were getting information they were getting technology they were getting all of this this stuff um yeah they were running on uh they, they were running on amphetamine 
you know, toward the end of the, the war, they were they were feeding their their troops tons of amphetamine. Hitler was a, a meth addict. Was he? Oh, yeah. He was full of meth all the time. That's wow. a, that's why he's so crazy. Maybe he did it to exacerbate or sort of enhance the contact. Yeah. Yep. Most likely. That's very sketchy. Yeah, here's oh. a here's a quote from probably one of the 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 biggest this this guy was high up in the government with uh Ronald Pies. He wrote the demise of the chemical imbalance theory in view of the mounting evidence against it after more than 20 years of being told the chemical imbalance in the brain causes mental illness such as anxiety disorder and depression. The theory was finally put to rest when Ronald Pies, the editor in chief of uh Emerus of the Psychiatric Times stated in the July 11th issue, uh, 2011, he said, I don't believe I've ever heard a knowledgeable, well-trained psychiatrist make such a preposterous claim that mental patients have a chemical imbalance, except perhaps to mock it. In truth, the chemical imbalance notion was always a kind of urban legend, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. You know, and they're still pushing it. The chemical imbalance theory is a sort of last century thinking. The neuroscientist Joseph Coyle of Harvard Medical School said, the truth is that they don't have any idea of what the chemical or neurological balance of the brain should be. You know, they, they just made it up. They just friggin' made it up. And then they sold it to an unsuspecting population. This is what it is. And we have the only the only treatment for it. You have to come to us, you know, there's there is nothing else you can do about it. That's bullcrap. There, right now there's there's spirit releasers popping up all over the place. These are people that know what these things are and can drive them off. Now the thing is, a schizophrenic has to bring up his vibrational level, or they'll come back. You know, mm -hmm. he's got they got to get on a positive spiritual path and stay there. So you can get an exorcist or a spiritual releaser in a lot of cases to drive these things off. But if, if they keep behaving and acting the way they have in a, in a negative, abusive fashion, the voices will come back. Hmm. Well, so what's... that's that's where the base energy method helps because they have all, you know, schizophrenics have a lot of abuse in their background. So so one of the things I do is start getting rid of that uh, that programmed abuse you know that sets them off all the time that'll make them better just in and of, of itself but a lot of times the voices will come and interfere you know they'll block it and that's that's a lot to do with like visualizing would you say a lot to do with what visualizing like how like what is yeah. the process like yeah they yeah they they if the person being treated with mace has to be able to visualize if they can't the mace method won't work with them mm -hmm. they have to be able to conjure up images and you most most people most people can but yeah. there's a, there's a very few that can't and if they can't do that mace can't do anything for them hmm. you mentioned something else when talking about this in another interview about how um like the god spark in us focuses in on certain things. I can't remember exactly what you said. Uh, I don't know if it, maybe it was an older interview. Uh, 
God, I can't remember what it was. It was something to that effect. Does that make sense to you at all? Well, I, I remember one time I had an experience where, <clears throat> uh, uh, I don't know if I should go through all of it. Well, I'll tell you about it. Okay. What happened is, is while I was investigating these voices at the state hospital, I was struggling to kind of try to figure out what they were and how they behaved and, and what they sounded like. So one day I came back and I prayed and I said, you know, Lord, let me experience what these sound sound like. You know, what, what are the, what, what, I wanted to, to be able to experience them. So, um, uh, probably a stupid thing to do, but, uh, you know, about three weeks later, I'd come home after working at the, at the hospital, you know, just to relax. And I, I, I was living on a lake and, um, after work, I'd just go swimming. I was a strong swimmer and I'd wait till sunset because the motorboats would start disappearing off the lake at sunset and it was safer to swim and uh, out into the lake. And uh, one night I started started uh, swimming out into, into the lake and it, it was like a meditation. I was a strong swimmer and I just, I worked it so my oxygen consumption matched my output. So it, it was like a, it was kind of like a meditation. And, uh, you know, I kind of fell into the trance of swimming. And then uh, I started getting tired. <clears throat> I stopped and I looked up and I was way out in the middle of the lake. And I was tired. Now, I've been a strong swimmer all my life. Uh, Temple University, I took a semester of skin diving and then a semester of scuba diving. So that training was much more intense than what you have nowadays, <laughs> much more intense. Mm -hmm. So... You know, they taught us uh, what they call the survival float, um, where you're spending, expending very little energy. <clears throat> and I stop and I'm looking around and it's sunset. And uh, here, here this voice comes into my head and it says, uh, and it sounded just like my, you know, like I was telling you, it sounded just like one of my thoughts. It said, uh, you're tired and you're, you're too tired to make it back to the shore. That was true. You know, I, I couldn't make it back to the shore in my present state. And I went, yeah, yeah, okay. Then it comes in and, and it's getting dark. You know, okay, that's obvious. It's getting dark. And then it goes, uh, the lights are going to start going out on the shore uh, after a while. And you're going to get disoriented and uh, you won't be able to get back to shore. I'm like, the chances of that happen are pretty slim. You know, and uh, then it says, and you're going to drown. And I'm like, where in the Dickens did that come from? <laughs> you know, that was the last thing on my mind. I mean, what am I going to, I'm going to drown. I mean, I just wasn't even concerned about it. It wasn't even a thought, mm -hmm. you know? So what I recognized is that thing was giving me a yes set. It was a psychological yes set. And I'm like, why would I use a yes set against myself to convince myself that I was going to drown? That made no sense. Even when I knew that I wasn't going to drown. There was, there was no doubt in my mind. I wasn't even concerned about it. It wasn't my thought, but, but it, it sure did get my attention. Now, with what the survival float is, is you, um, you use very little energy. You put your hands behind your back. You take a big, deep breath, and then you just float like a dead man. So your, your, your legs are hanging down under you. Your hands are behind your back. Your face is in the water, and you just hold your breath for as long as you can. 
and then you whip your head up and you blow out that air as much as fast as you can. And as soon as you blow it out, you start sinking. All right. So you have to take in another whole breath before your face goes underwater. And then even if you do get it before your face goes underwater, you still drop down two or three feet before you float back up again into that dead man's float. Okay. So I, here I was doing that and uh, I was sinking and this, this voice comes and it goes, see, you're sinking toward the bottom. You're going to drown. And I'm like, what? You know, what, what the, what the frick? What is this thing? Now, it wasn't me, you know. So I came back up, and it goes. Uh, so you were sinking toward the bottom, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what? That's what you. That's what happens. So on the next next time, <clears throat> instead of just holding my breath, I started spiting whatever this thing was. I I let out more air, so I did start sinking. Okay, and then the deeper I went, you hit what they call crush depth, where the water pressure actually can collapses your lungs, and you start sinking very quick, mm -hmm. you know, past a certain depth. So I was dropping like a rock, and uh, considering what was happening, you know, I was a little freaked out at how fast I was heading for the bottom. So <clears throat> I I kind of I went, well, this is pretty fast, and I swam toward the surface again. And uh, even before I got out there, I knew what it was. I knew I'd hit the crush depth. And here's this thing come back and it goes, see, you're tired. You can't make it to the shore. You were sinking toward the bottom. You're going to drown. And I'm like, what the devil is this thing? So go down again, let out air, sink past the crush depth. And I'm sinking toward the bottom. Now it's, now it's dark outside. Right? So there is no sight. There is no sound. Uh, you know, it's pitch black in the water. I'm sinking toward the bottom. I have no deep, I have no idea how deep the bottom is. You know, equalizing the pressure in my ears as I'm dropping. And then I feel this freezing cold something moving up my legs. You know, and I shot toward the surface. And even before I got there, I knew it was the thermocline. It's a layer of cold water that that's heavier than the warm water. And it sinks toward the bottom. And it usually lays on the bottom. You know. So shot toward the surface again, got up there and it goes, see, you're panicking. It's late. You can't make it back. You're too tired. It's getting dark. The lights are going to go out on the shore, you know, and you're panicking. You're going to drown. And I'm like, what the devil is this thing? So I head back down again, you know, let the air out, equalize the pressure in my ears, drop past the crush depth, move through the, um, uh, thermocline, which is a, a layer of very cold water. But this this thermocline wasn't sitting on the bottom. It was floating above the bottom. So I moved all the way through it, and I'm still sinking toward the bottom. <laughs> I had no, no idea how deep I was. And finally, I felt this this something crawling up my my feet and my ankles shot toward the surface again. Even before I got there, I knew it was muck from the bottom. But I wasn't expecting muck because as far as I walked out into the lake, it was always been rock. So, so I thought the whole bottom of the lake was rock. I hadn't suspected that it would be muck. So even before I got to the surface, uh, I knew it was muck. When I got to the surface, the things again, here it is, you're panicking. You know, it's too, too, you're too far for the shore for you. 
uh, and you know what I was doing took very little energy dropping down to the bottom. I mean, it's just basically letting the air out and sinking. This time it says there's a motorboat coming and it's headed right for you. And that was strange because you can hear sound underwater for a long distance. You know, and I didn't hear anything, but I look off and far in the distance, sure enough, there's a motorboat heading in my direction with the green and white light on you know, moving pretty quickly. And here's this thing saying, it's headed right for you. It's going to hit you. It's going to cut you to ribbons. You're going to be mincemeat. You're never going to make it back to the shore. And I'm like, I've had to dive under motorboats before when I was scuba diving. If I need to, I'll just head for the bottom and I'll stay there till it passes over. No big deal. Now, I don't want to do that, but if I have to, I can. And I'm watching this thing come closer and closer and closer. And the whole time it's telling me it's going to grind you to pieces. They can't see you. It's dark out. They'll never see you. You know, you're going to, you're done. And, uh, you know, I'm just watching. <clears throat> and the thing comes, uh, comes within 20 feet of me or 25 feet. And like it's like the, this thing said, it, they didn't see me at all. So I'm, I turn my head and I watch it pass. And uh, I wasn't paying attention to the wake that it made. You know, so I turn my head back again uh, after watching it, and the, the wake from the motorboat hits me just as I'm taking in a mouth of water or a mouth of uh, breath of air. Mm -hmm. And I start choking on the water and uh, spit it out and, and cough a couple of times and, uh, you know, get my composure. And here's this thing going, you're drowning, you're drowning. You know, you're, you're too tired to make it back to the shore, you're drowning. And I'm like, what the devil is this thing? I'm like, screw you. So, uh, you know, I took another breath of air, <clears throat> headed for the bottom again, sunk all the way down through the thermocline, my feet stuck in the mud, and I'm, I'm laying on the bottom like a dead man. My, my, my hands are, you know, my feet are stuck in the mud, I'm bent over, and my arms are hanging down like six inches above the, the bottom. And there was no light, there was no sound, there was no feeling because the water was like bath water. I couldn't feel anything with my feet because they were, the, the mud had surrounded them and I couldn't feel anything. And I was still a little nervous about this whole thing. So I was a little bit scared, kind of waiting for something to come out of the dark and grab me. You know, what's the next step? And uh, so, so I was actually mentally silent. I was very quiet and I was waiting for something to happen. And uh, so for all practical purposes, my body was shut off. There was no sight. There was no sound. There was no feeling. There was no breathing. All there was was I was aware that I was aware. There was no light, you know, and it was a, like a, a, peak, a peak experience. I, I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. And I knew then that that's what there was underneath everything else that's what's there the uh, the cognitive awareness that you're aware that you're aware but then when you start getting all this input from your senses and your thoughts and your feelings and and the environment around you all that covers that up you know mm -hmm. so uh, i only could hold my breath for maybe 20 seconds while i was down there and uh like headed 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 for the surface, you know, very leisurely fashion. I have no idea how deep I was. I mean, it must have been at least thirty-five feet. And I got to the surface, and that thing didn't come back. It was gone. Really? You know, and I never heard from it again. You know, yeah. 
But I did hear, I, so I did hear the voices once, and they sounded just like me. Hmm. And that shocked me. I didn't believe it. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't. I thought they were something else, like people hearing voices would be like, "Well, you're there. You're no good." No, it sounds just exactly like you sound, just like the the normal thousands of voices that go through your head at any one time. You don't actually hear voices, right? Like you, you like. I mean, I don't know. With me, I've never heard anything like like audibly inside my head. It's just like thoughts are. They, well, that's what they are. That's right. what they are. They're thoughts. They right. inject those thoughts into your thought stream. Impulses. And they, they, they sound just like you. Uh-huh. But if you listen to them, you're going to get in trouble. They want you in trouble. They want to generate that negative emotional energy. And mm. I don't know how many patients I talked to who were as curious about the voices as I was. And they said, I asked them what they were. And they said, we are you. That happened over and over and over again. They want you to believe that those negative thoughts that are entering your head are you. Wow. And Emanuel Swedenborg says, none of your thoughts that come into your head belong to you. You're the balance point between them. You choose between the good thoughts and the bad thoughts. You're the chooser. And whatever you choose the most is the direction you're going to move into. Wow. And the Indians have a saying like that, too. You said, you know, there's there's good wolves and bad wolves. And the one that you feed the most is the one that's going to grow. That makes a lot of sense to me, actually. Swedenborg says the same thing. Yeah. Well, Jerry, we're approaching two hours here, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But that's... uh. Yeah, that's some mind-blowing information that um, people can can start to look into, maybe. Uh, where can people read more about your work and follow you and all that stuff? Well, they can go to my website at jerrymarzinski.com. That's M-A-R-Z-I-N-S-K-Y. They can also get this this book about the voices and how we discovered that they were entities and not, um, you know, not hallucinations. I mean, so this is going to fly in the face of everything the psychiatric mafia said. Now, my co-author, Sherry Sweeney, she heard voices for years. She fought with them. They were trying to kill her. So she co-authored this with me. So it's just not my opinion alone. Wow. Okay. I'm gonna so are there, there any last questions you want to ask? I, you said you had a bunch of questions, and I oh. went rambling on and didn't answer a lot of them. No, I mean, I think we we covered it as as we went. I think that was that was about it. Um, yeah, I think we. I wanted to ask you about Ouija boards and all that stuff. And I think, yeah, I don't think, touch uh, those things, bad. They're bad. They're yeah. really bad. <laughs> I know uh, a, a lot of patients went crazy using Ouija boards. Yeah, can imagine. Be very careful with what you mess with. Yes. Um, especially now that Halloween is approaching. So. <laughs> Um, all right. Yeah, no, I think that's it, Jerry. Thank you so much for, for coming by. And um, yeah, maybe we'll reconnect in the future and we can cover some more. 